Okay, so really happy to welcome back on the show, Trent McConaughey, co-founder of Ocean Protocol. Trent, it's been a while. How are you doing? I'm well. Good to see you. Good to be on here again. So obviously the podcast has been going for some time now, and I reckon I've known Trent since 2013, maybe. We did have you on the show as one of the first guests several years ago. Hopefully we've we've grown the audience by now. We've got lots of new people that have come into the space. Wanted to reintroduce Trent, Ocean Protocol actually has a number of announcements. So we're going to talk through some of those and in some new releases. But actually, I think it's a very timely moment to, to bring uh, Trent back because time has proven him right on his thesis um, about the convergence of blockchain and uh, Web3 and AI. And actually, a, a number of the innovations he's brought to market even prior to, to Ocean Protocol all had their moment. He, he's been um, right more more often than he's been wrong, at least that I'm aware of. Maybe he managed to hide the things he, he, he got wrong. Certainly the, the kind of more high-profile public ones, he, he's pretty much um, hit the nail on the head. And of course, um, I think by now, uh, everybody's aware of perhaps some of the emerging problems, challenges of AI as it goes mainstream with its killer apps, but then also the potential possibility for Web3 to be able to fix some of those, potentially even extend the promise of what's possible with AI, how it's owned, um, and the data economy. So just very quickly, Trent is a serial entrepreneur that came to blockchains from the perspective of AI and and machine learning, had multiple exits of AI companies um, to Synopsys and Siemens. As I mentioned, has kind of been ahead of his time with an, a number of initiatives going back to Ascribe, which was kind of doing blockchain-based art, I guess we call it NFTs now, in 2013, BigchainDB, Blockchain Database, and then more recently, um, Ocean Protocol, which he co-founded with Bruce Pond. We were very lucky to be um, an early investor in that, I think technically in, in the friends and family round after many beers in Berlin, usually talking about um, the convergence of blockchain and AI. I don't know how they rank in SEO terms, but certainly some of the earliest, deepest thinking on that subject, you know, Trent Trent was doing, albeit uh, without the level of attention, I think that it deserved. I think that's kind of coming now. I think Ocean Protocol's time has also come, which is, which is great to see and well done for hanging in there, you know, being able to kind of finance, continue developing that product across cycles, basically. Trent has also pioneered uh, token engineering as a discipline. So going beyond token design and actually bringing engineering principles, something we've continued to uh, to collaborate on. And then also looking at data tokens, I think we call them IDOs. IDOs also have a different meaning now in terms of uh, launching tokens on DEXs, but I think we're the first one to use the term IDO in terms of initial data offering. And then we're going to talk about Predictor, which is the new thing. So we've got a lot to cover. As interested as I am in Predictor, I do think that... Um, we need to do you service and, and allow you time to kind of reflect, I guess, on all those things that you've got right. And I think for founders, hear your founder journey of being early. Timing is obviously one of the hardest things to get right as a founder and investor. But if you are perhaps too early sometimes, surviving is the next best thing. So it would be great to kind of have you uh, give a potted history of 
what got you to here, I guess, Trent. Reflections on some of your th- early thinking on, on blockchain and AI. And then, of course, we'll get into predictor. I was raised in a pig farm in the middle of Canada. Studied electrical engineering and computer science. Um, and for fun, I was always hacking, you know, uh, on the side. During undergraduate, I was hacking on AI, etc. I managed to get some summer jobs um, where people would pay me to work on AI, which I couldn't believe at the time. This was the mid-late 90s. So from that, uh, it led me straight out of undergrad to start uh, my first company, which was AI for designing computer chips, specifically uh, for creative design of analog circuits. Initially, we were doing things like using genetic programming to evolve the circuit topology, the structure. Turns out that was too early for the market, so we had to do a zoom-in pivot and focus on just optimizing parameters. That was enough. Um, you know, That was sufficiently advanced for the, the users at the time. And, um, you know, these days we hear a lot about AI um, for creative design and all that. Um, And, you know, it's gone mainstream. Back then, you know, we were basically having to do all this heavy lifting, you know, designers seeing what we had and thinking, okay, if if this computer is doing the creative design, what am I doing? Is this thing going to take my job and stuff? So we had to basically, you know, teach them that it was more like a co-pilot in terms of the, you know, phrasing used now. I think that the product was called Genius, Unleash Your Genius, right? That was the phrase. Um, for the first company, you know, started that company in, in officially in 1999, based on about a year of prototyping and hacking before that. And then, you know, this was the height of the dot com bubble. So we are a bunch of kids, basically, straight out of undergrad, we managed to raise uh, a, a decent uh, amount of money from Silicon Valley and elsewhere. And then, um, you know, grew the company, built it up, went through our pivots, went through a cash crunch because we were a bit early. So this is where we did the zoom in pivot and we found a way to hang on. And then eventually, you know, we started getting real customers, real traction, and the company got acquired in 2004. So, you know, a lot of events happening in uh, that five-year period. Um, and it was, you know, a really great first adventure in the world of startups. From that, I, uh, I decided to do a PhD also for creative AI. Um, focusing on circuit design because I, I felt like that I hadn't fully cracked that problem for the first startup. And, um, you know, by going into academia on that, you don't have to have um, be constrained by commercial needs and stuff. So I, I went full force and I came up with something that I was quite proud of, you know, where it drew on a lot of the corpus of engineering knowledge for designing circuits. So it would actually be able to basically think of it like you could, you could draw any uh, random circuit from this uh, well-defined distribution of random circuits, and they would all be well-formed. They were correct by construction. And that was sort of via this language of, of, of circuits, if you will. Just sort of like now, you know, if an AI comes up with something, usually it's uh, pretty well-formed for an image, say, it looks pretty good. Um, it's, you know, that in its case, um, it's sort of a lot of training data, but it gives it pretty good constraints in what it comes up with compared to, you know, AI coming up with images 15 years ago tended to be a lot more janky than it was good. So anyway, that was the approach I had uh, for the PhD. At the same time as starting the PhD, I started a second company, which was uh, also AI for chip design. In this case, it was for verifying analog circuits and memory circuits and so on. For example, does a memory bit cell, does that whole, uh, you know, which stores a bit of information, one bit. So, you know, um, a one gigabit uh, memory chip would hold one billion of those bit cells plus some error correction, et cetera, sense amps, et cetera. So it means, though, that each bit cell, um, you know, has to have a very low failure rate, you know, on the order of one in a billion. But it's a huge difference in the failure rate if it's one in a billion versus 1.1 in a billion failure rate. So how do you estimate that? You could go and do 50 billion Monte Carlo samples, which means 50 billion simulations, but that would break the bank computationally. So we had to figure out tricks to chop that down where we could get the accuracy 
as if we did 50 billion simulations, but do it much faster. So, you know, instead of having to run a cluster of a thousand machines for a month, we managed to chop it down to um, about 10 minutes on a laptop or so. So we were pretty happy with that. That was the second company. Where So the first company was really focused on design of analog circuits. The second company was verification of analog circuits. And in the world of CAD for chip design, those are really the two big um, pieces, uh, the two big subfields. You know, there's design and verification for digital and for analog. And as a quick aside, um, I just gave a talk at ETC, sort of teaching uh, the, the token engineering uh, community about um, how the circuit community approaches uh, verification of, of analog circuits, which is actually very, very similar. And then said, you know, hey, you know, what, what was done in the world of verification of analog circuits? If we say that a lot of the problems we're seeing right now in, in token land, such as, you know, flash loan uh, attacks, breaking contracts, and a lot of bridge attacks and otherwise, these uh, really are the problem of analog token verification. So it's not the digital side of the smart contracts. It's the analog side. It's the inten- incentives. It's um, you know the non-on or off, not true or false, but really the continuous value behavior and continuous in time behavior. So if we actually take uh, the, the you know theory, practice, and tools from an- analog circuit verification, bring that into the world of analog token verification, there's some pretty cool wins there. So I'm hopeful for that. You know, um, it, it seems that the, you know, the field is getting there and we keep maturing. And it's really been awesome, by the way, to iterate with Outlier on this too. Uh, in fact, even at that talk, the, the speaker right before me, Achim, is from Outlier. So it was, it was nice to be back to back with him. So I'll just pause there for a second before I get into the blockchain stuff and, and see if you have thoughts or comments. So it's really interesting. Again, you really informed my thinking around token design, bringing engineering rigor, the idea that if we want these systems to be able to handle the economic load of billions, trillions of dollars worth of value transactions, then we need to be sure they're going to hold up as much as we need to be sure an airplane flies or a bridge can you know, take that traffic. And so I think you know, taking that learning from engineering and modeling, designing complex systems, um, as you say, with incredibly low failure rates, um, really opened my eyes to the importance of token design, obviously something we, we kind of continue to invest in in thinking about here at Outlier. I'm glad we got to talk about that. And I think one of the interesting things, maybe in retrospect, maybe it wasn't by design, but in retrospect, if I look at your career, it seems that you work in one domain, maybe working on something you know quite specific that leads you to another problem, to identify another problem which then leads you on to your next startup. And there's kind of almost this this chain, um, which seems to be quite logical in a way of startups that naturally kind of feed into one another as a, as a narrative, you know, f- all the way uh, to, to Ocean Protocol. It would be good to just touch a little bit on, on a scribe because I think that was when I first met you. And again, I think a project well, well ahead of its time. One of the really cool things that I've always loved about Trent is his commitment to open source. So, you know, practically everything that's ever been done, as far as I'm aware in, in the Web3 space, has been open sourced or eventually open sourced. You know, when there might be a particular initiative that might commercially have not um, taken off, that code base has really helped kind of in, inform a lot of other innovation going on in Web3. But yeah, it'd be great to talk about Ascribe. And then I guess 
Big Chain DB as a stepping stone into Ocean Protocol. Yeah, basically um, to wrap up this verification. So the second company, the first company was called ADA, by the way, Analog Design Automation. The second company was called Solido, the verification one. By about 2010, 2011, we had built everything that I'd set out to build. Um, we had become profitable. We had won most of the big semis in the space, the Qualcomm's and Samsung's of the world. And TSMC, which was kind of one of my main goals at the beginning was if we can get TSMC using this, it means that you know, they're using AI to drive Moore's Law, which is always just sort of, you know, as a nerd, it's a very uh, fun thing to sort of aim for. And I was happily surprised to find TSMC engineers using our software to design the next generation of, of, of silicon when I visited um, them in about 2011 or so. So with Solido, we had got to the point where um, we were we had turned into a scale-up. We were past startup. Um, we had gone through harrowing times too. There was cash crunch at one point too. And then, you know, we were in a scale-up mode and... Uh, uh, we, I started basically thinking about other things that I might be interested to do. Like you had mentioned, right? It seems that, you know, the dots connect quite logically. Myself, I'm a big nerd, right? I love to follow lots of fields, uh, AI and VR and crypto um, uh, and uh, BCI, brain-computer interfaces and more. At the same time, I recognize that, you know, I have a particular uh, set of expertise that it's wise if I, you know, if I'm going to go jump into something else to be able to leverage my existing expertise and then learn what I need. And that's in line with a lot of career advice that people have given, right? You want to do something that um, can pay the bills, ideally well, um, something that you're passionate about and something that you're, you know, hopefully good at, right? So that intersection of those three things, money, passion, skill. Anyway, uh, that's part of the thread too. Uh, and then, you know, I was always super passionate about AI. Um, semiconductors was always interesting because it was a hard problem that was applied and ha could have a big impact. To be honest, I never paid close attention to cryptography. But, um, you know, I was quite interested in the cypherpunk stuff happening in the late 90s. Um, and then when Bitcoin came out, you know, my friends and I would hang out talking about it all the time, right? Um, it was super exciting to us. And we only got the Bitcoin financial stuff. But then... Um, in 2013, I, um, I I landed in Berlin and started hanging out at Room 77 with a bunch of the people there uh, talking about um, Bitcoin. And they were already talking about blockchain. And I'm like, oh, huh, I never thought about this that much. So I went back to the Satoshi white paper, reread it, thought about it a lot and, um, you know, realized, wow, you know, we've got this general purpose technology. It's, you know, as powerful as AI or BCI or these other things, it was sort of an arbitrage. Most things you've seen coming for decades, right? AI, people have been talking about since the 40s or 50s, depends who you ask. And same thing with the uh, high temperature uh, superconductivity, right? Which we just saw emerge as a final technology. Blockchain um, as sort of this decentralized ledger, it wasn't part of this mainstream discussion. People had anticipated it here and there. Probably most famously, the Agoric papers from the 80s with uh, Mark Miller and others. And then also, you know, some of the early writings leading to the web, things like Xanadu, Ted Nelson, and so on, which also affected a scribe, of course. But the point is, this wasn't part of the mainstream discussion the way that AI was in some way. I learned about Bitcoin, got excited about it. 2013, I learned about blockchain, got excited about it and realized there was even, you know, different than AI or other things, there was also an arbitrage, which is a useful thing, which is realizing that this thing could impact things and most of the world didn't get it yet. To me, you know, extra interesting as an entrepreneur, because it buys you a bit of time to chase new ideas. And it's even more blue ocean, if you will, right, rather than, you know, the Red Sea of Shark, it's blue ocean. So, um, so I, I, you know, thinking about different ideas, and um my wife, Ma Masha, um, she is a professional uh, museologist. She ha is trained at the Ecole de Louvre, the, the Louvre School for Museology. 
she has a PhD in the relationship between art and commerce from the Sorbonne. She had worked uh, at uh, uh, galleries, including in Paris and in Vancouver, contemporary art, traditional art. She had also helped to curate, assistant curate at the um, Louvre. So she had this very deep uh, art background, right? When we're and you know, whenever we were in whatever cities we were in, Vancouver, Berlin, whatever, uh, you know, she would be spending a lot of time in the art scene, hanging with artists, etc. So w- with that, um, when we uh, when we arrived in Berlin, you know, she started to notice this problem around how do you collect digital art? A collector came to her and said, you know, I just bought this uh, DVD for ten thousand dollars from your gallery with this art. There's a scratch. Can you replace it, please? And the artist is like, well, no, I sold you the artifact. I didn't sell you the thing. So uh, the collector was kind of like, okay, that's not like, you know, both sides were angry with each other, right? Um, Because there was this confusion about what it was that was bought. But uh, it was actually really hard for collectors to buy digital art. They would actually have to buy some artifact. You know, um, if you're buying digital art in the 80s or 90s or 2000s, you're probably buying some TV with it or DVD or something, right? Uh, Yet at the same time, we are well into the web era, you know, um, more than uh, 20 years worth of web already. Yet it was really hard to to monetize that because, you know, things could could be copied and pasted. So uh, it was hard for collectors to collect the art. And because of that, it was hard for uh, digital artists, artists creating digital art to make any real money from it. So that was a big question. It was emerging as a big problem. The art world had called it an elephant in the room problem. You know, after going one day, Mash and I were hanging out after going to some gallery and she was talking about this elephant in the room problem. How do you collect digital art? And I'd been going on and on about blockchain. <laughs> and this is a common thing. You know, we're, we're both quite patient and interested in what each other have to say. And then we both sort of looked at each other. It's like, wait a minute, what we just asked together. <laughs> what if you could own digital art the way you own Bitcoin? And that turned out to be a wonderful question to ask. And we pulled on the thread and um, pulled on it. And, you know, we, we're still pulling it 10 years later. But just for context, what, so what year is this then? What was it? Ascribe was 13? Yeah, this was, this, we, this was probably uh, maybe April, May of 2013 when we asked this question. And we started, you know, writing, uh, you know, in pursuing it um, shortly after, like June, July. Um, we actually filed a patent for it, I think, in... I think it got filed officially in August of 2013. Uh, we let that expire because we realized this wasn't in line with the, the Web3 ethos. You know, at the time, we were coming from the world of enterprise. But we, we let it lapse simply because of that. We didn't want it to get in the way of, of actual innovation. So by, you know, 2014, uh, we were iterating on a beta with many artists. And we went live, in, I think, January 2015. And what it was basically was, these days, you would call it an NFT platform. Uh, it was on Bitcoin. You know, Ethereum didn't exist yet. You could, you know, someone could come along, uh, sign up with their... Uh, email address and uh, just a regular password. Under the hood, it would automatically compute a private key that for Bitcoin, uh, HD private key. It would get uh, registered on the Bitcoin blockchain following a particular protocol we just devised called Spool Protocol. Um, secure public ownership layer. I'm missing an O, but something like that. <laughs> um, and yeah, uh, and then you know, you could also transfer it, right? Um, so, you know, once you've registered it, claiming that you have the copyright to it, then you can transfer it, which basically works as a sublicense. And we actually had a lawyer working with us uh, for better part of two years, where he devised all the legals around this too. So you not only had technology protection via blockchain, you also had legal protection where you were claiming copyright, and then it was the licensing, sublicensing, etc. So, you know, it's best of both worlds. You've got the traditional world of legals, um, and all the backing that nations give for that, as well as the, the technology-based protection. And yeah, we, uh, you know, built that up, grew it, uh, got to about 10,000 uh, artists and users, 40,000 registered works, uh, went to raise money for the Series A. Our numbers weren't good enough for Web2. That was the metric at the time. So we, we we basically said we have to pivot. We did some experiments, led us to Big Chain DB, decentralized database. 
That was really for targeted, you know, um, for enterprises. That went well for a while. We did a lot of POCs, uh, I think like 50 POCs with basically every big name in, in Europe. And none of them went to production. You know, just enterprises weren't ready for production blockchain. And, um, you know, this is 2015, 2016. So uh, we said, let's go back to permissionless. We prefer that anyway. And I was missing AI. I was starting to think a lot more about AI. You hinted at that already, and I can talk more about that. So by mid-2016, I was starting to write about how AI and blockchain intersect, you know, articles on AI DAOs and how blockchain can help AI, etc. And um, it, all roads pointed to decentralized data markets. And we realized this would be a really, you know, great nut to crack problem to solve. And that's what um, that was became the inception of Ocean. And, we, you know, we spent most the better part of 2017, you know, getting Ocean going and then um, been at it ever since. Yeah. And we're going to get into Ocean Protocol in, in a little bit. One thing I want to go back to, sorry to jump around a little bit, but I think it's an interesting concept for founders, perhaps especially now, right? There's a big uh, capital crunch in, in the venture world. There's not enough um, venture capital going around for early early stage founders. You mentioned the Zoom in pivot. Could you just talk, elaborate on that a little bit? I'll even give an, an example. So PayPal started out uh, quite broad. Um, it was basically you know payments over the internet, and they didn't have uh, they had a pretty broad set of customers. You know, helping people buy on any website that you know any shop that people set up. Um, whether it be uh, PayPal or the Amazons of the world or otherwise. As they iterated, they discovered that something like 80% of the traffic was actually on eBay, used goods um, and collectibles and stuff, right? And that was a big site in the internet in the early 2000s, right? So um, they decided to double down on that and basically do a zoom in pivot where they focused the vast majority of their effort to having a really awesome experience for uh, eBay. And because of that, you know, the eBay experience got better, 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 more quickly than the rest. And they, they grew much better. So my first company, we started off uh, with a quite a broad scope, basically doing search through the space of possible circuits, uh, like analog circuit structures and parameters. So like, how does this resistor con connect to this transistor, connect to this resistor? And what is the resistance of this? And what is the, tr um, the width of that transistor, et cetera? But this was, you know, too broad. So in our case, the zoom in pivot was simply a more narrow search space. Having a fixed topology where you're not changing the structure, um, we would just uh, wiggle the parameters. So it's just doing optimization, not synthesis in the parlance of, of that. So zoom and pivot is basically um, taking your product offering, focusing on just one aspect of it. And in our case, we stopped shipping the rest. We just focused on the optimizer because it allowed us to, to do that. Um, in the case of PayPal, they kept shipping the rest, but they really, really, really focused all their energies to make the, the eBay experience really awesome. So that's a zoom in pivot. Uh, you know, there's many types of pivots, right? You can just go from one product offering to the next. My, my next company, also, we had to do a pivot. We started off with doing uh, optimization for analog circuits, um, but accounting for yield, like statistical variation. But it turned out that that was also you know, too far ahead of its time. So we chopped that down to just um, statistical analysis. But that turned out not to be compelling enough to compare to the offerings out there. So then we added in high sigma statistical analysis, which turned out to be compelling because it was a big savings in compute time and so on. So we, we basically did two pivots until we had our first hit product in that second company. And even in this third project, if you will, in blockchain, right, it all derives from the same company. It was initially ascribed GmbH. And then we did a pretty big pivot within Cryptoland to decentralized database, you know, BigchainDB, think like MongoDB, but with tenement um, consensus around it. And from that, we did another pivot to Ocean. But, you know, crypto was so new that you could go from, you know, one uh, offering to another to another and, you know, manage to reuse a lot of the skills that you had built up. It's uh, been pretty blue ocean because there's just so much to build. So we were able to go from one thing to the next, you know, the broad brushstrokes. 
And uh, even with Notion, right, we've done various tunings over the years too, various sort of um, smaller pivots, if you will, towards traction. Yeah. And I guess, as you said earlier, you know, considering much of what we were talking about was pre or, or just post Ethereum launch, in a way, certainly how we looked at the space as an investor, and at that time, we would have really framed ourselves as an incubator, not an accelerator. That it was, it was really deep tech. You know, the expectation was is that anything you invest, well, firstly, there's no point investing in anything that wasn't infrastructure. Quick realization for us, and then secondly, you know, you would have to expect that to take several years before that thing would even be used. Um, and so that that timing thing was so critical. But I think that mindset meant there was a lot more latitude for experimentation. I think. The patience for that's worn out now, right? We're a decade into crypto. People want to see adoption. Um, they want to understand cost per acquisition for users. The world's moved on. I, I don't think big infrastructure projects will, will get financed that much anymore, right? But it's interesting for people entering a new domain, uh, that kind of opportunity space that, that's afforded to a founder. So then let's get into Ocean. So the kind of problem statement that kind of triggered Ocean Protocol. Um, and then I guess the stack and innovations um, and, and how that's evolved. What are we now? So that's 17, three, six years. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, I'll talk about ocean uh, evolution, et cetera. But I want to loop back just on what you're saying here. I think it's useful for your audience on, you know, building infrastructure versus uh, last mile apps, et cetera. Um, there's a challenge here. Anytime you're building infrastructure, it means that it's going to be a longer time to actually get traction where there's dollars in a sense, because, you know, the traction comes from the last mile app. So you sort of have to have infrastructure and some sort of last mile usage probably, right? So that extends the timeline. Um, and also if you're kind of visionary trying to build something, you know, you have one or two pivots, it takes time, but the big challenge is cash and cash is king in a startup, but you know, uh, most startups maybe have the luxury of one big pivot. In my first startup, we had one big pivot. In my second startup, we had small to medium-sized pivots, right? With Ascribe, Big Chain Ocean, we've had two big pivots, right? So in all of those, though, uh, it was pretty harrowing times, right? Um, going through the pivots. And I, I've looking backwards, I, I realized this, um, that I kind of had this mantra to myself, but I, it was subconscious for years, which is, I'm never going to let this thing die. I'm going to make it happen. I'm going to make it happen. I don't care what's going to happen. Even if everyone else leaves, I'm going to do it myself. And, you know, I'm a builder so that I know that I, I, I probably could, even though it'd be slow and stuff, it'd be slow and maybe painful and stuff. But if I can find a way to feed myself and keep going, then, you know, other people can join the cause and, and so on, right? So fortunately, I never ever came to that. But um, having, having that resolve that it's like, I'm going to make this happen no matter what, actually makes it easier for other people to join in, in a sense. Um, you shouldn't always do that, by the way. You know, I have, you know, my wife, in a sense, as my safety valve of like, Trent, you're crazy. You know, if I was, you know, being a lone wolf for four years on something, it's probably time to change. But there's value in that, right? Um, and there is uh, like really cool. My favorite example of this in startup land is Blogger. So uh, Ev Williams had started Blogger just by building this thing for himself on the side. It was the first, you know, good blogging site. Um, built it up. It was starting to get traction and um, s some VCs came around and he took some VC money and he grew the team to, I don't remember, 10 people, 30 people. So th they built it out. But then um, there came a cash crunch. I think it was the dot-com implosion or something. I forget wh exactly which one. They hadn't got good enough traction making enough money to be able to pay for them. So basically everyone left except for Ev. So once again, he was low in wolf. I think coding for at least a couple of years on his own, but the traction kept growing, growing, growing. I believe that's when he got acquired. I forget Yahoo or Twitter or someone. He got acquired um, based on just the lots of having lots of traction. And so the point is he slogged it out. He was able to do it. Having this resolve, he knew he was onto something. 
And he had the resolve and the skills to just make it happen, right? So I think that's a useful heuristic, but you, you should never be, you know, sort of 100% absolute in everything. I always give yourself sort of maybe one, you know, a backup and a backup plan if you need. Um, but that definitely helped. Um, in, in the first company, we actually shocked our investors. You know, it wasn't just me with this resolve. All the founders were like this and all of our, uh, you know, earliest employees, et cetera. We were all like this. And we found ways to extend a runway. That was, I, I look back, it's like, holy cow, that was pretty pretty cool what we pulled off. Yeah. And I think this is why it's important for us anyway, that there's always a technical co-founder. The technical team aren't just contractors. They're not just employees who will come and go naturally when the uncertainty increases or the risk increases. But you're absolutely right you know at some point sometimes you have to say okay i might be right but um but i'm too early or whatever whatever other reason why it might not make sense to kind of pursue um pursue with that path and look i think that's really useful stuff thanks for that in terms of pivoting and kind of navigating that space so so yeah so let's then go to kind of the problem statement as was for ocean protocol maybe it's the same maybe it's you know the slight tweak but uh, as it was in what 2017. You know, in 2016, I wrote this blo- uh, blog post, "Blockchains for Artificial Intelligence," and by that time, I'd come up with this um, heuristic, this set of tools to identify how um, blockchain could help any field. I broke it down to four specific benefits: uh, decentralized, immutable assets, and incentives. So, decentralized, as in um, you can have uh, play coordination games uh, to coordinate a group of people, whether it's 10 people or 100 or 10,000. Um, you know, Bitcoin is 10,000, multi-sig is 10, and DAOs are somewhere in between. And, you know, if it's 10,000, it really becomes sort of a utility across the internet. So that's decentralization. Immutable means provenance, you know, provenance of data, asset trails, provenance of money, provenance of art, all of that. Asset means uh, not your key, not your Bitcoin, not your key, not your data. You own it. If you have the key to it. So this is, uh, you know, the bearer asset approach, uh, rather than um, someone else having uh, some say in what you own, right. Um, And that's very useful, because you know, you, um, it's, it's, that's become the standard that is the standard in blockchain land, and it's very healthy and helpful. And then the fourth one that I actually only really fully recognized in 2017 is uh, incentives, you know, and I think that's actually the superpower of blockchains, uh, that this idea that you can get people to do stuff by paying them in tokens. And then the question is, what do you want them to do? And how do you go about designing a system to get them to do this? And that looks a lot like an optimization problem. You basically, you know, come up with an objective function um, and a design space. And the objective function is, you know, something that you want uh, to maximize or minimize. So Bitcoin says, I want to maximize the security of Bitcoin. How? I want people to go and contribute um, to the security by doing hashes in this particular way, right? So, uh, yeah, that's the the overall uh, set of tools that I came up with the first three in, I think, 2015 or 2016, and then the, the fourth one in 2017. Anyway, I applied this to, uh, and I'll summarize once again, decentralized, immutable assets, incentives. So with those that tool, I turned the crank in late 2016 um, and said, what does this look like for uh, AI? And by the way, what does this look like for big data? I found, you know, for each, I just said, okay, how can decentralization really help AI, Right. And you can have things like shared ownership of uh, AI algorithms, shared ownership of data feeding into AI, public utility networks um, that are fully decentralized with uh, training AIs and otherwise, right? And turn the crank and went through all of this. Uh, that blog post, yeah, did turn out to be quite popular too. There was this recurring theme of data throughout that because, um, you know, data is unreasonably effective. If you want to, you know, make your AI more accurate, you have a choice. You could spend four years worth of PhD level research to improve the accuracy, you know, to reduce the error from say 20% to 10% or 10% to 1%. Or you can take an engineering approach and throw 10x more data at it. 
and you'll you'll get similar like roughly the same results which by the way is a bit embarrassing to ai people because you know ai people like to be able to you know be the smartest people in the room and stuff with their algorithms but now you can just you know just have more you know more data or more compute and if you have more data of course you need more compute so um, and it can be 10x then 100x and 1000x more data google started doing this in earnest in the mid 2000s followed by all the all the other big big guys right given that the the vast importance of ai to data I, I, you know, I wrote about that also in that article and realized that there was these big problems. You know, the Googles of the world had reams and reams of data. But what about the average AI researcher trying to, you know, um, predict, uh, come up with uh, models that could predict cancer, you know, try to detect early stage cancer. And I remember one friend of mine, he was uh, working with a hospital and he got access to a, a data set. It's so bad, it barely deserves the name. I think it was like something like 120 people. <laughs> um, and it was uh, DNA data, uh, like SNP stuff with something like 100,000 um, uh, dimensions per data set per, per, per point. So you've got 100,000 dimensions uh, and uh, like 100 data points. It's really, really a poorly formed data set. You can barely do anything with it, right? You can apply regularized linear learning, um, but in the end, it's really hard to do much, right? But imagine that that same dimension of problem with 100,000 vectors, but you've got, you know, 100 million data points or a billion or 10 billion. That starts to get really interesting, right? And that's actually what we've, we've been seeing with um, with AI for the last 20 years, but it's really hit the mainstream, in this, especially the last couple of years where we see these, you know, large language models or very large language models, right? You know, in circuit land, you know, we used to have large scale integrated circuits, LSI, and then those got really big. So we called started calling them VLSI. I think that was the early 80s, VLSI. And then they got extra, extra super large, but they didn't come up with more acronyms. They just kept calling them VLSI all the way along. So I, I guess we smartened up in neural network land. We just called them large language models, but we'll probably never see VLLMs. Just, just to pause on that point. So obviously by now everyone's heard of um, OpenAI. They probably use ChatGPT. And it's now being reported that there's these diminishing returns. In fact, in some ways, the more it's being used, the stupider it's getting or the, or the, the worse the answers. Could you maybe give perspective on that, right? You know, was that an obvious thing that was going to happen or is that something that's emergent? Yeah. So um, actually about two or three years ago, someone actually did a very cool study, actually uh, several teams, but there's a paper that is sort of this scaling law for, a, uh, for AI, for LLMs, where uh, if you want to have um, a, a particular error with a particular um, uh, problem domain within language, then here's the size of the AI model you need. Here's the size of the data set you need, right? And if you have 10x more data, it won't move the needle. There really is a sweet spot, but it allowed researchers to really calibrate how much data they might need for, for a certain um, sub-problem they're aiming for, right? And that was actually, yeah, like a medium-sized breakthrough a couple of years ago. What we saw, you know, OpenAI, if you recall, a couple of years ago, they raised, um, what was it, uh, $10 billion from Microsoft, or was it a billion? A, a lot, I think 10, right? Because then they went and spent, like, uh, most of that on cloud services, right? I mean, if you've got $10 billion, um, you're not, you know, using that to hire, you know, 10,000 employees immediately, right? So they had, had relatively small number of employees still, but uh, it was spending most of that on compute. So training chat, G, uh, sorry, chain, training GPT-4, which powers chat GPT, et cetera, uh, was probably, I don't know if it's reported, but at least a billion dollars worth of compute, I'm pretty sure, right? So the thing is, that was for GPT-4, but maybe you want, now, now they want to do GPT-5, they're working on it, they've been working on it for a while, of course. If they had to spend a um, billion dollars worth of, of compute and maybe another billion dollars gathering data, so $2 billion, V4, chat GPT, sorry, GPT-4, then for V5, maybe they want to go 10x, now you're looking at spending $20 billion and it just doesn't fly, right? It's too much. So um, they, they hit a wall, actually, more economics 
than um, parameters. And maybe they were seeing diminishing returns, but the thing is, it's just like not worth spending $20 billion to find out yes or no, right? It was worth spending a billion dollars to find out, which is interesting. And by the way, this is actually what happened to Moore's Law itself too, right? When Intel, you know, did the first fabs in, in, in the uh, 60s, um, it would cost, you know, $10,000, $20,000 to do that initial fab to manufacture um, com computer chips, right? Like VLSI circuits, or back then, extra small <laughs> integrated circuits. Um, so, um, but then, you know, with each uh, passing generation, um, the, the price would go up in some exponential factor. And roughly speaking, at least from the 80s onwards, it was roughly doubling, right? So, you know, a fab might have been 100K, and then the next generation was um, 200K, then 400K then 1.6 million, et cetera. And by the time of about 2005, it would have been about a billion dollars, if I recall correctly, to do a fab, right? Maybe, actually, maybe even by then, 5 billion. It was a lot, right? And then within that fab, that's just the factory with all the machines inside. And then to manufacture a given chip, which is basically come up with a set of instructions, it's called a mask set, would cost $50 million, right? So you better get this right, right? That's why we have all this really awesome circuit verification stuff. So $50 million for that, plus the XFAB, that's um, $2 billion. So what happened was up till that point, up until about the year 2000, there was tons of semiconductor companies which own their own fab, right? Everyone and their dog had their own fab, you know, Texas Instruments and and everyone, right? Uh, not just Intel and Samsung, but uh, Sony and the rest. Fast forward to about, uh, you know, from about 1997-ish till about 2005, they all got rid of their fabs. There was basically just a handful left. There was a pure play fab that had emerged called TSMC, Taiwan Semiconductor Manufacturing. There was Intel because they were so huge. You know, they won they won big in the 90s, right, with Wintel, Windows plus Intel. And Samsung um, and basically everyone else, Texas Instruments, sold their fabs. Sony sold their fab, et cetera. They all went fabless. And then there was a bunch of new startups that just started fabless, like Qualcomm, right? So basically, the economics dictated it. And then over the years, even these guys have dropped off. So in the last couple of years, uh, maybe I think two years ago, three years ago, Intel even started using TSMC for the most advanced process nodes, um, just because it was too expensive otherwise, right? You know, $10 billion, $20 billion or more for an, a new fab. We're seeing exactly the same thing happen in LLM land. So Moore's Law slowed down and then is basically kind of ground to a halt um, because of economics. And this is the challenge we're seeing right now with uh, LMs. But uh, with circuits, you know, there is research to try to find ways to do the cheaper, cheaper, cheaper. But people aren't as used to it there because for the last, you know, 40 years, it's been this gift that's been giving, keep on giving, actually 60 years, right? It's kind of amazing. Um, in LM land, because everything is open source and there's huge financial incentive to do a good job, since GPT-4 came out and even before, there's a researchers that keep finding ways to get a 2x here, a 10x there, a 2x here, a 10x there. Um, and, you know, these days now, you know, people are getting to the level of GPT 3.5 level models uh, on a single um, NVIDIA uh, GPU, which is kind of amazing, right? On just like, you know, say one day to one week of compute processing, right? It's, it's kind of amazing. So that um, means that then if you're open AI, maybe you can use that, you know, you still run 10 of these or a thousand of these for a month and you see what you come up with. Uh, so, you know, we, we sort of paused um, by just doing the, the naive 10x, by 10, spending 10x more money, because we hit this economic constraint. And instead, you know, the open source world stepped in, plus open AI, but especially the open source world, the stability AIs and the llamas and all this, and uh, made everything way, way, way cheaper, which is, uh, and now everyone's building on that and just racing ahead, right? So AI is going to keep advancing and I don't think we've hit a wall, right? Um, you know, there's so many people out there chasing it and the economic gains can be so great that I actually don't, don't see a wall. And a lot of the time, just as another sort of factor for this, 
Um, every you know few years, there's some famous AI researcher that comes along and says, I don't think AI can go any further. We need to have fancy thing X, fancy thing Y. We need to do symbolic modeling. We need to do expert systems again. We need to do this. But in the end, it's just more compute, right? Um, one of my favorite results was um, the state of the art in, say, 2015 was um, uh, even then they were calling them uh, deep neural networks, right? It went from deep belief networks to deep neural networks um, from the likes of Hinton and stuff out of Toronto. And um, this uh, Schmidt Hooper and his team out of uh, Switzerland and slash Germany, um, they took uh, the same neural network architecture and training algorithm from 1989, the, the plain Jane backprop. And they just took it, they made it larger instead of just three or four layers, they made it 10 or 20 layers, and they just threw a ton of compute at it, and they got the same results as the all the deep learning stuff. So it was not any change to algorithms at all or anything, and it was just like lots of compute. Not really any more compute per se compared to the state of the art. But that was also kind of, once again, this thing that you didn't need to get fancy with algorithms, et cetera. And by the way, the hint and all the deep belief stuff was not that much changes anyway, right? It was a tweak here and a tweak there, uh, really, if we want to be honest with ourselves. Um, and, you know, since that time, we've had a couple other slightly bigger changes. We've had transformers changes and uh, the fine tuning people going nuts on that. But all in all, it hasn't been massive, massive changes to these th these basic ideas of neural networks, you know, 1989 and non of the early 60s. So uh, my point is here, um, it's still a very blue ocean. It's a, a, a broad set of design space that people are exploring, like thousands, probably tens of thousands of people exploring aggressively. Some of them will pop. So we're not going to hit a wall. And so does this then take us full circle back to, to the data problem or the data opportunity, right? So... Obviously, or my understanding anyway is is that OpenAI, ChatGPT, and GPT three, etc., have been primarily trained on open web data, which in theory anybody can access. Of course, there's various claims to whether they should or shouldn't have used that for commercial purposes or uh, Getty Images, you know, uh, suing various new entities for for training on on um, their prop assets, I guess. But effectively, that could only take you so far. Um, perhaps at a, a more generalized level, but as you then need to have deeper specialisms, you then need to access new, new data. So you need a new economic paradigm which incentivizes and enables that data economy. And I guess brings us back to the premise of, of Ocean Protocol, right? After writing this paper um, about how blockchains can help AI, uh, I, I saw this. We saw this challenge overall. It was if you weren't a, a Google or a Facebook of the world, it's really hard to get your hands on really good data sets, um, large data sets to have accurate enough models. So how do you, right? And on the flip side, there was all this, you know, tons and tons of data inside enterprises, for example, that could be used, um, you know, for a price, but you have to address the privacy concerns. And then also, there's all this data that individuals have on their smartphones, etc. It'd be awesome to be able to access that for a price. But in that case, also, how do you handle the privacy uh, aspects there? And from the enterprises, too, they have to handle the privacy and the liability and stuff, too. So these are the, the big challenges. Um, how do you sort of connect the, you know, the, the potential data suppliers with the potential data consumers in a way that um, addresses privacy, in a way that you can have it where it's priced data or, or free data, ideally having some form of price discovery, um, and ideally that there's no centralized middleman that ends up winning it all, right? That's already you know, been a problem with the Googles of the world. But as we go forward, especially when we get into things like brain, you know, BCI data, neural, neural data, you really don't want that to be controlled by Google. And Google has seen pushback, right? They were trying to do, you know, federated learning across dozens of hospitals in the UK, and the UK kicked them out because of privacy concerns, right? It was just too much control of users' health data to, um, on that one thing. So you really uh, need to 
have more decentralized management of this. So that led to Ocean basically saying, okay, at the heart of it, uh, the heart of the problem is let's, you know, we want to kickstart this data economy. Maybe a way to summarize is level the playing field around data and AI. So make it aware it doesn't matter if you're a researcher at Google or, you know, um, an undergrad student trying to build an AI model, you have an equal opportunity to access the data. And then on the flip side, level the opportunity to be selling the data, right? Um, An open marketplace to be selling the data or sharing it, right? And as needed, where needed, you have provenance of where the data came from, right? And um, the provenance, of course, comes uh, pretty easily with with uh, blockchain to track it, just like you know we did in Ascribe Base with digital art, where provenance is king in the art world. That was the premise we, we began with with Ocean, and it's largely held to this day. To be able to do the decentralized data marketplace, we kind of implicitly knew, but we really made it explicit very quickly, which was you need to have really good decentralized access control. So think like when you're using Google Drive right now um, to share something to someone else, you give their email, et cetera. And, um, you know, you're clicking share, share to an email address, whatever. Um, in, there's this middleman in between called Google, even if, you know, the, the data itself maybe is, uh, you know, it doesn't necessarily, you know, wh- why do you have to have it being living on Google Drive, et cetera? Um, so ideally, it's living on uh, Filecoin or Arweave or something decentralized, uh, ideally encrypted, et cetera, you share to the person. Um, and th- that, that sharing infrastructure is all decentralized, too. And then if you want to make it really uh, interoperable, why not make it where you can have you can make, make it easy to manage and share the data the same way that you manage and share Bitcoin and ETH and, you know, a thousand other uh, ERC-20 tokens and NFTs. So that means tokenizing it, right? So that's basically what we ended up building. The heart of it is um, decentralized access control, um, where if you hold 1.0 data tokens, ERC-20 data tokens for a given data set, data service, then it means you can access the thing. You you have the you know you can come in and say I want to start consuming this, and then you get the file or you get the access to the REST API or otherwise. That's the heart of it. And then Ocean has infrastructure to publish these things and consume them. And we have uh, you know typically it's you know static data or REST API, but we also have this thing computed data, so you can actually have um, uh, a script that runs next to the data itself. You know inside an enterprise's um, uh, infrastructure or a hospital's infra- infrastructure or on someone's phone that maybe computes the average across the data set or some other statistic or maybe, um, you know, does a bit of training to update some neural network model or something. So that's the heart of Ocean. Um, if you go to, you know, the apps on top of it, you know, we have this reference app, the Ocean Marketplace, Ocean Market. Um, and then there's a bunch of people building other apps. You know, there's a decentralized uh, Kegel competitions called D-Sites. There's... Um, other data marketplaces that people have built, probably the most famous one is uh, Daimler has a spin-off called Eccentric, where um, it's starting with automotive data, but they're also targeting other enterprises. So they've done all the things for enterprise compliance, things like making KYC really easy, uh, KYC AML, identity related, um, and a bunch of other needs, and really doubling down on the computer data side too, to handle um, privacy and liability and making it really easy for enterprises to adopt. Uh, so, so that's where we're at uh, with Ocean. Um, and I guess one other thing, we kind of just wrapped up, call it phase one of Ocean, and we're entering phase two, sort of in the last year. Phase one was basically building to the white paper, everything we dreamed to build, et cetera. Um, you know, keeping our promises to the community, uh, which is, you know, decentralized data infrastructure, data markets, uh, all that. Um, and then the, the second phase that we're entering now is really going for traction, right? You know, getting off of the version treadmill and instead focusing on where can, how can we really make this data economy happen? How can we you know, drive the data consume volume, you know, the amount of money flowing through this open data economy where people have their own, you know, choice of how to share privately, et cetera, um, and just grow that, right? And with that, um, you know, the core team spends time working with other teams, um, maintaining the core stack, tuning it as needed, 
as well as, um, like hinted in the beginning of this podcast, we have an internal effort around um, something called uh, Predictor, which uh, as of the, this podcast coming out, we've just announced. Um, and I'll get to that. So let's go, let's get into Predictor. Predictor is a stack and an application for prediction feeds. Its main users are DeFi traders and uh, data scientists. So if you're a DeFi trader, you can go to predictor.ai. It's two O's. So P-R-E-D-I-C-T-O-O-R.ai, predictor.ai. And you'll see there that it lists um, the top 10 uh, pairs. So um, or top 10 tokens by market cap, Bitcoin, ETH, etc. And for each of them, well, for Bitcoin, you'll see that it's actually giving a, uh, a prediction of whether Bitcoin will go up or down five minutes from now with a confidence level. And it keeps updating every five minutes. And then below that, you'll see one for ETH and XRP and other things. And those, um, it won't say whether it's um, going up or down yet. You'll see a little buy button that you can basically choose to buy that feed. And when you buy that feed, um, then you get access to it for the next 24 hours. So basically what you can do then is you can um, have one window open while you're seeing the predictions of whether this thing goes up or down. Um, five minutes from now, and then you can have your Binance open. And this is actually focusing in the initial product on Binance pairs, um, Bitcoin, uh, TrueUSD, um, simply because that has zero fees, um, and, you know, ETH, TrueUSD, etc. Um, so open it, keep your Binance open. And if you think it goes up and you're confident in it, great, you know, buy if you want, or short, however you want, or do whatever other actions you want, right? So that's um, the experience from perspective of a trader. Um, but of course, uh, it's, it's every five minutes. So why not wire it up with a bot? So of course, we make it really easy. We've got um, readmes where people can um, fork uh, a repo uh, for running a trading bot um, in Python and then change it as they need with um, just you know the, the predictions as they're coming. Um, and uh, then uh, they can you know buy and sell as they need, uh, as, as they choose, et cetera. So that's one side. It's, you know, basically prediction feeds where the main user is, uh, is traders initially there, but then where do these predictions come from? Are they any good? Right? So, um, uh, the first thing we did actually towards this was make sure that we could get accurate predictions internally. Um, and we got to the point where we got accurate predictions and we've been trading those uh, against those internally, uh, with, with real money, um, because you know, it, it's accurate. So we've got decent accuracy ourselves, and we could have sold that ourselves as, you know, the Ocean Core team, Ocean Protocol Foundation. But, you know, that's a bit centralized-ish, and we don't really want that. We really want to kickstart a data economy. So we, we looked around and we saw, you know, there's uh, different approaches to basically leveraging wisdom of the crowd from an optimization perspective. Most notably, how CowSwap does it, where there's a bunch of different CowSwap solvers that every minute or so, um, there's a bunch of different trades uh, to be matched, orders to be matched in this DEX setup. And um, these CalSwap solvers, each one runs an optimization to try to maximize the amount of matching and then spits that back and then does some matching and um, the winner wins and they get money. So that's CalSwap. So CalSwap is a very interesting sort of DEX um, that, you know, is sort of solves this coincidence of wants among traders, you know. So uh, someone, trader one, there wants to trade A for B, trader two, B for C, trader C, uh, uh, trader three, C for A, A, B, C. But you can have, you know, a hundred different trades and the sort of spaghetti mess and these solvers go and solve that. So that's what CowSwap does. I've, you know, been a long time fan of it. It's from the Gnosis team, long time fan of the Gnosis team in general. Um, there's other examples too. Numerai is doing um, uh, predictions where people submit predictions. In this case, uh, prediction, the centralized hedge fund takes those predictions, aggregates them, trade against them, and then shares the proceeds back to the people making the predictions, which I think is really cool. I'm a big fan of Numerai as well. Um, so what we're doing here 
is uh, people can submit predictions um, for tokens. Um, so in Numerai, you know, they submit it for stocks in an obfuscated way. In our case, they submit it for a prediction. Will Bitcoin go up? Yes or no? Five minutes from now. Will ETH go up? Yes or no? Five minutes from now. They stake against it as well. So they have to put their money where their mouth is. And then um, uh, Predictor aggregates all those different predictions, uh, weighted by stake, and um, puts that thing for sale, right? And so uh, the people that are making the predictions, you know, if they're really confident, if they're really good, they'll be staking a lot. If they're not confident, if they're not good, they won't stake. And on average, um, it's going to, you know, be uh, uh, be correct, uh, or it should be. And in our results, um, you know, you don't want to be 50% correct or 49% correct. That's even worse. Or even 50.1 or 51%. Ideally, you, you know, you're 52% or 60% 60% accurate or whatever. So, yeah, you're going to be wrong some of the time, but on average, you make money, right? Um, you're, you're On average, you're correct enough to make money accounting for trading fees, et cetera. And that's exactly the case. You know, in our internal experiments, we have that. And now, you know, um, we have this emerging community that we call predictors, the people that are submitting predictions. Will ETH go up five minutes from now or not? Will Bitcoin go up five minutes or not? And then um, they get paid based on how much money, how, how, how much they've staked and whether they're accurate enough. So, and they get paid every five, uh, on five minute intervals, basically, right? So those are the two overall communities. Basically, there's prediction feeds of um, ETH, you know, will Bitcoin go up, yes or no, ETH, et cetera. And um, that prediction feed is populated from, in a crowdsource fashion, where these predictors are submitting predictions and staking against it. And then uh, to kickstart this um, predictor community, we are running one internally from Ocean Core team, maybe even two. Um, and then also we've been uh, collaborating with another team to launch one as well. And of course, it's open to anyone. So once again, we have readmes, et cetera, for people to take and download this code, fork it, et cetera. So we hope that a whole community will emerge of 10 or 100 or more predictors. Um, and you know the way that you make money as a predictor is uh, threefold. First of all, um, if you're a predictor and you're wrong, your stake gets slashed, that particular prediction. And it goes to the others. So the others get, um, it's a zero sum among those stakes. So the people who are right get um, get that value pro rata to how much they staked. But then also um, people buying the feeds, all um, the vast majority of the people, uh, you know, the payments to buy the feeds that goes to the people making predictions. And then a, a, a small cut goes to the ocean community um, and to, to uh, buy back and burn ocean and a bit more. So, so that's... Um, the second thing. And the third thing is to kickstart it, you know, we don't know how big the market will be for people buying this, right? Will it be, you know, $10,000 a week worth of sales? Will it be less? Will it be more? We don't know, right? So we decided let's have an incentive program for this um, as part of our data forming program. And we are putting in, um, it's 35,000 ocean a week. So at the time of this, re this recording, that's uh, ocean's at about 40 cents. So it's about 10,000 ocean a week or $10,000 worth of ocean a week to these feeds, we're launching with 10 feeds. So it's $1,000 per feed per week. So basically, as a predictor, you can um, make money. Um, if you're accurate, you'll make money um, from uh, slashes of other predictors stake, um, from revenue coming from the traders buying, as well as from this kickstart uh, revenue, basically from incentives. So yeah, we encourage people to come out, to come, you know, to, to play with this thing, to trade against it, hopefully make money, to predict, to become predictors, to hopefully make money too. And uh, we're launching with DeFi tokens. We're starting with 10 tokens. Um, uh, but we're going to expand to this. You know, we're going to be going to, um, you know, top 100 coins. We're going to be going to more exchanges and more timescales as well. Um, not just five minutes, but, but longer. 
And then stay tuned beyond beyond that, we're going to go beyond DeFi as well. So we, we see that, um, you know, the idea of prediction feeds, um, it's a new sort of category. It's sort of like a prediction market every five minutes. So call it iterated prediction market, if you will. Um, but it's its own unique beast too, because it's also a data feed. Um, it just happens to be a data feed that's very valuable because it's making a prediction. It's sort of at the tail end of the, this data supply chain where you can act on it immediately and make money. So, um, you know, we're quite excited about this. We've been working at it for quite a while in the Ocean Core team um, and really happy to be, you know, sharing it. Very cool. So congratulations on the launch. I know uh, DGENs will re rejoice at that, especially the go-to-market. Uh, I know the team at Outlier will have a lot of fun internally with that. So we'll get some of our own prediction markets going. So we're up on the hour, very uh, appreciative of, of your time, but I would be remiss to not kind of close off asking you about your perspective on proof of personhood. So, of course, we have OpenAI posing the problem that advances now are going to put everybody out of work. So we need some form of UBI, universal basic income to kind of offset that. The antidote is being positioned as WorldCoin, um, uh, both by Sam Altman, of course. Um, and the core premise to WorldCoin is proof of personhood. Now, you might not necessarily want to go into a critique of WorldCoin, but feel free. But I think more around this premise, you know, the, the problem and I guess the opportunity of uh, proof of personhood and approaches to solving it. So I'm going to approach this from an AI perspective. We have one large problem looming in the AI future and then one crazy huge large one looming beyond that. So the large one is that AI could take away all the jobs. And if you disagree, uh, just at least allow for the fact that maybe there's a 10% chance that it could take all the jobs, okay? So if even though there's a 10% chance, then we should start to think about what we can do about that, right? Uh, that's So that's the, the, the nearer term, uh, large-ish problem. And the super large problem is that we get AI super intelligence. And what do we do about that? And um, there's no economic incentive to slow down AI research. And it's kind of you know, crazy to say we can solve it just by, you know, having AI researchers, like, sorry, AI doing research to solve it, like you still need some fundamental solution. So for that, you know, my, my quick answer there is we need humans needed a competitive substrate, we need human superintelligence. But that's for another day. But so going then to this, uh, this near term, large problem in AI, uh, this risk of AI taking all the jobs, and I actually have seen this as a, a big risk for years, right? I've been doing AI professionally since the 90s, right? So I've written about this in the past, um, long before WorldCoin and thought about it and talked about it with friends and stuff too. You know, to just pause that for a second, if you think about what, when people work, most people in the world, they don't like their job. So they're working, they're working to feed their family or feed themselves and probably their family if they have a family. And maybe 10% of people are getting satisfaction from their job, right? Maybe 20, depending on how you measure, right? But whenever we talk about, you know, uh, UBI and stuff, people always say, yeah, but I needed to be feel self-fulfilled and all that, right? Well, that's actually just, you know, 10%, 20% at most. And the thing is, uh, you can imagine if you can do that, even without, you know, working to get paid, right? So the point is, we can take the concept of work and decouple it into two pieces, um, getting paid enough to feed your family, and then uh, chasing uh, self-actualization. So I really like the idea of, um, you know, if AI uh, is taking all the jobs, we don't get paid that way, then uh, we should have some sort of safety net, in my view, if we can pay for it economically, if we can pay for it um, to, you know, meet our basic needs, you know, that's universal basic income, food, clothing, shelter, water. But then why stop there too, right? Why not also pay for healthcare and education going up Maslow's hierarchy all the way to the top, self-actualization. So for me, 
It's USA, universal self-actualization income. And that to me is much more interesting where every person can chase their dreams, whether it's, you know, writing the great American novel or, um, you know, playing video games in your mother's basement, take your pick, right? We shouldn't choose. That's the point of universal, you know? Um, and uh, if you think about like when you watch Star Trek or something like that, they don't actually have to worry about income. They can all chase their own thing, right? You know, so um, it, there, there's conceptions of this out there in sci-fi and otherwise that imagine this where everyone's chasing their own dream and they don't have to worry about how to feed themselves or, and they, they know that if they work hard, they can, uh, they can have access to opportunities like going to Starfleet Academy or otherwise. So I see, you know, overall, this seems to be the most pragmatic approach to solving the problem of AI taking the jobs, UBI um, or USI. Uh, how do we pay for it? Um, there have been, you know, studies out there uh, in Canada, in um, in Europe, elsewhere on this. Um, it's come out actually looking relatively promising. To me, though, we can also simply uh, hack incentives in AI and blockchain too. Like AI and blockchain are general purpose technologies. They're creating a lot of wealth. So why not redirect the wealth um, that they're creating back towards helping to pay for UBI and USI? Um, so to me, that's kind of a no-brainer. Like imagine you have... Um, a, a fleet of cars, sort of like Uber, but all of them are self-driving and not only self-driving, but self-owning, right? So they, uh, you know, they start off self-owning, buying uh, with sort of this mortgage from Daimler or whoever they, they buy from. And then they, pay, they, they run in this Uber-style fleet, fully decentralized, of course. And maybe they pay themselves off after two or three years, right? After that, all their surplus, but there's some for repairs, of course, but all the surplus would go to uh, USI. And this car isn't so smart that it would, you know, care about, um, you know, saving for chasing its own dreams. It's not that smart, it's just, but it's smart enough to send its surplus to, um, to humans. And I like that scenario. And you can do that for cars, um, not just one car, but a whole fleet of cars. And then the roads around and uh, the electric grid and everything around. Um, and it's sort of this new layer of infrastructure for humanity. So we've had this sort of layer 1.0, call it nature 1.0, which is the trees and the sun and oxygen and stuff. Layer 2.0, I've, you know, been calling this nature 2.0 for years now. And it's actually this, right, where it's all this extra wealth being generated. Um, uh, it's sort of this layer of silicon and steel that then um, extends this cradle of civilization for humanity, right? Um, and yeah, to me, that's pretty exciting. Um, there's an even better label than nature 2.0, uh, which is called Sovereign Nature. And there's an initiative around that, SNI, Sovereign Nature Initiative, kicked off by Ed Hesse and, and others. And I really love the initiative. I think it's great. So they've taken that, that vision and really ran with it. Um, so going to then proof of personhood and WorldCoin. So uh, to be honest, full kudos for Sam Altman recognizing this in the early days of OpenAI. He got really worried about this. So he went and started WorldCoin um, soon after OpenAI. You know, Elon working OpenAI got really worried about the second big problem and went off and started Neuralink to help basically, you know, towards human superintelligence, basically, right? They don't talk about that much, but that's, you know, the, the prime motivation of Neuralink. So kudos to Sam Altman and co for, for doing WorldCoin. Um, I think from a marketing perspective, they certainly grabbed the world's attention with these orbs, which immediately repulsed a lot of people. Um, and uh, overall, uh, uh, I think it's actually, you know, really useful that they're trying to solve uh, proof of personhood. Um, obviously, in, in blockchain land, we have this idea of a civil attack everywhere. So if you have a, a useful decentralized proof of personhood, um, then that can be very, very useful, right? Um, WorldCoin itself is fairly centralized, but they've done, uh, from what I can tell in my cursory uh, review, a pretty good job on the privacy, right? Um, everything they store, they do store centralized right now, but it's all encrypted and it's just, uh, or accessed with, via zero knowledge proofs, et cetera. So they're doing a pretty good job there. And I was skeptical. And then I was talking with this uh, fellow Remco Blonin, uh, you know, uh, ex-Berliner 
who I deeply respect, not only from a technical perspective, but also values perspective. And to be honest, he changed my thinking. Like he really opened me up saying, you know, like just teaching me about what they were up to with WorldCoin. So I'm probably more positively biased than a lot of people in crypto. So thank you, Remco, for opening my eyes more. But also I'm biased because I already believed in the idea of UBI slash USI and all this. So yes, there's still centralized aspects. Yes, it happens to originate from Silicon Valley, which a lot of people don't like. I, my, my, you know, what I tell the crypto world, get over it, right? Like it's a solution and they're doing a very good go to market. So, you know, um, uh, good for them. And in the end, maybe that'll be the prevailing standard. There's other potential competing standards. We'll see. And overall, it's the sort of thing that could get more fully decentralized over time. And, you know, with the Remco Blonins of the world involved in this, I'm um, more positive that it will be. All right. Well, Trent, look, thanks for that. I mean, we've covered so much. Um, I appreciate your time. I know you are, I think you may be even on vacation at the moment in Latvia. So uh, over an hour of your time on vacation is uh, is, is worth its uh, uh, got in gold. So, um, but Trent, it's been great to catch up. Really looking forward to seeing the success of Predictor continue to set success of uh, Ocean Protocol. Thanks for coming on. If you enjoyed today's podcast, please make sure you subscribe, rate, and share your feedback to help us reach as many people as possible with the important mission of Web3. 